Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The 2023 hurricane season has begun, and a near-normal season is predicted, with 12 to 17 named storms and 5 to 9 hurricanes. To help understand what that means, we'll discuss the meteorology of hurricanes, what's causing storms to spin up in the Atlantic. We'll also talk with emergency managers who weathered the powerful winds and devastating floods from Hurricane Ian last September, about what they learned and how it's helping them prepare for this season. The last major hurricane to make a direct hit on the region's largest city, Tampa, was more than 100 years ago, and that means old housing there could be vulnerable to the next big storm. Emergency managers in Tampa and across the region worry about complacency from longtime residents and making sure the flood of new arrivals to Florida are prepared for when a storm hits. Well, joining me in the studio, uh, John Antapasis, Tampa Fire Rescue Emergency Coordinator. Thanks for being here, John. I'm glad to be here. We're also joined by Mike Clay. He's the Bay News 9 Chief Meteorologist. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, great to be here. And with us by Zoom, Jody Fisk, Manatee County Public Safety Director. Jody, thank you. No problem. And we're also joined by Michael Ryan, Northport Emergency Manager. Michael, thank you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Mike, I want to start with you. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is predicting a near-normal hurricane season, 12 to 17 named storms, of which five to nine could become hurricanes. Just explain what that means. It's really tough this year because there are two fighting parameters. El Nino is forming in the Pacific, which usually reduces the number of hurricanes in the Atlantic because of wind shear. On the other hand, water temperatures in the Atlantic are similar to what we've seen in some of the most active hurricane seasons on record. So we have two bookmarks, two extremes, and a lot of the people that are making these long-term forecasts are just, what do you do with that? Uh, well, you go in the middle mm-hmm. <laughs> and you go with average. So. We always say it only takes just one. Uh, this year, there could be a lot of hurricanes out over the Atlantic that never get close to the United States because of El Nino coming in from the Pacific, fighting them off. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. We've had seasons like this, which were similar to 2004, mm-hmm. which was terrible in Florida. And we had seasons like this, which were similar to 2015, which was nothing. Yeah. There are some other factors, too, which can either exacerbate storms or suppress them too? Like what about dust from the Sahara? There seems to be quite a bit of it coming off right now, but that area of the world has been very stormy, very wet. There's been a lot more rain there. And so that often happens in very active hurricane seasons. There's Mm -hmm. more uh, coming off the coast of Africa and it's coming out into very warm water. So it may have a limiting factor early in the season, but not later. Right. Last year had 14 named storms. So on paper, also Mm -hmm. an average season, but it was the third costliest, according to insurance company estimates, mostly because of Hurricane Ian. So what's the takeaway from that? That, That's crazy because it was our third year of La Nina in the Pacific. So 2020, off the chart, busy, ran out of names. And then we had three years of La Nina, and that was the third one. And you're right. If you look at it, it was a normal season, but all it takes is one. And we saw what happened here in Florida. Wrong place, wrong time with Ian. Anything else you're watching out for this early in the season? We usually have something that spins up early in the season. Uh, In June, 
July is usually pretty inactive, but we can see things uh, spin up early that are tropical storms. But that's mm-hmm. not always bad. That brings us rain. We've been in a drought, and so we're catching up very quickly on that. So that's good. John Antapasis, if I could bring you into this conversation, what does a near average storm season mean for you? I mean, does it alter the way you prepare at all? No, for the city of Tampa, it doesn't actually change anything. Actually, on the 31st, we do our emergency response center drill. So those are our push routes throughout the city because obviously we need all our roads cleared no matter what. So we have to practice, update all our plans, ensure that trainings are in place for shelters, for points of distribution, giving out water after a storm. We have to organize all that regardless of whatever the season's going to be looking like because mm-hmm. no matter what, it is only going to take one to hit us that we have to be prepared for. And what's a push route? So a push route after a storm, there's a lot of debris that's along the roadways. So first responders wouldn't be able to respond if those roadways are blocked. So our public works teams organize. They actually sit in schools when the storm's going through, when the all clear is made. Those crews start pushing that debris off those roads for first responders to get in mm-hmm. and provide those life safety measures. Is there anything different about the season? Like, is there kind of more or less potential for debris or does it help that there's been a bit of a drought, as uh, Mike was mentioning, maybe less foliage around? Yeah, the assumption's still the same like last year. We have some lessons learned from Ian for sure, added capabilities. We've added drones into those push teams as well. So better situational awareness that if we get stuck on a certain route, we can put up a drone in the air and sort of see the amount of damage that's really occurred. Mm -hmm. Is that the first year you've used drones? It's the second year, but we've actually added another three drones to the cruise. So we've doubled the capacity for there. So Tampa, of course, like a lot of cities in Florida, there are certain things that are going to be similar across Florida, wherever you are. But when it comes to the city of Tampa specifically, what, what are some of the biggest concerns about hurricane season? Yeah, we have a lot of unique vulnerabilities. Obviously, a coastal city. We have the port, Tampa Bay, which has a lot of hazardous materials there as well. So obviously, that storm surge would add additional vulnerabilities with hazardous materials there. A lot of low-lying areas. We haven't been hit for 102 years, so the building stock is also older than places such as South Florida, Broward County, Miami-Dade that did get impacts from Hurricane Andrew and Wilma in 0405 storms. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that complacency in the city is something we always try to overcome with our preparedness message through Mayor Castor and Fire Chief Barbara Tripp just to continue to push it that we got to be prepared for that one time that it is going to come to the city. We've been so lucky over the years. Hurricane Irma I've ridden through uh, and obviously Ian last year, which we were right in the target to get hit for it. And then that made that turn. Um, and we got very lucky both those times. A lot of the building stock, I live in South Tampa. You know, a lot of the housing is from the 50s, Seminole Heights, you know, Ebor area. You're going back to the 1920s. And that's, it's ripe for vulnerabilities throughout the city. Mm-hmm. The odds are low, but the consequences are high. We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but John mentioned the complacency. I mean, that's something that is hard to break through, I think, right? Oh, it is. And every hurricane is different, and everybody thinks they've been through a hurricane when they really haven't. So unless you've been through the eye wall of an Andrew or a Michael or uh, some of these big hurricanes that have hit the state, you really don't know what a hurricane is like. Mm. And everybody thinks what they've been through is the worst that can happen. That's human nature. But unless you've been through the eye wall of a Cat 3 or above hurricane, you just don't really know what it's like. Jody, parts of Manatee County were flooded and suffered some pretty bad wind damage during Hurricane Ian. How's the county looking now? Like, how, How's the recovery been? Recovery has actually been very, very smooth for us. We got very fortunate that the wind damage was not what we expected. The flooding, the majority of that occurred out in the Mayaka area. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it was farms and 
the homes that were damaged or flooded out, we didn't suffer any kind of injury or fatality out there. So the riverine flooding was something that obviously the Weather Service was telling us about even prior to landfall to be ready for it. And so it definitely provided some lessons learned. It gave us new response tactics, new things to think about. You know, like John was talking about their um, push teams, we call them our fit teams, our first in teams Mm -hmm. in Manatee County, provided us the additional routes. And definitely for that area, one of the benefits I would say is that it definitely broke that complacency for a lot of folks who have ridden out Irma and various storms since then and didn't really think about taking an impact because they focus on the hurricane. They don't focus on the flooding that can come three to five days later. Mm -hmm. When you talk about maybe lessons learned and resources. John was talking about putting in some new drones. Does Manatee County have some new equipment that you're going to deploy, like maybe boats or something? So for a lot of like the search and rescue missions, those missions will come through the state. Mm -hmm. You know, we do have our beach patrol. We have certified rescue swimmers with our lifeguards. Our lifeguards are now going to be part of our shelter staffing teams and part of those first in teams to assist with those first pushes. Is that just because of the flooding that we saw last year? I mean, the county's always looking for ways to augment their staffing within the shelters. And so our lifeguards are also EMTs. Mm -hmm. So they are able to provide that basic life support in the shelter so that our EMS crews that are also there, the, the burden is somewhat spread out among all of them. So not everybody is super burned out. They're able to get out directly after and, and really make that first push. Mm -hmm. So it's in terms of staffing, resource placement, leaning forward ahead. What are we going to ask for from the Division of Emergency Management? How are we going to get them to support? All of those things, you take those lessons learned from every impact that you take. And talking about the difference between a rural county or mostly rural county and say the city of Tampa, like what are some of the things that spring to mind in terms of how you prepare, how you get residents ready for hurricane season? It's a lot of mixed messaging. You know, you've got the cities and you want to tell people in your evacuation zones, you're in an A and B, you run from the water, you hide from the wind. So you just have to make sure your messaging is complete. And other than that, it's it's just making sure that your resources and your responses are ready to go right away. Mm -hmm. I wonder, too, about the tail after the hurricane, because if you have flooding and you talked about riverine flooding, so, you know, waterways getting flooded and maybe staying flooded for weeks at a time. That's got to put a lot of pressure on search and rescue and emergency resources too. It can. I think I'll actually kick this over to uh, Mike because I know that the city of Northport, I was their regional coordinator during Ian with the state. So I know that, you know, we had the counties that dealt with the surge and the search and rescue missions were were obviously focused on those coastal areas that, that took that impact. But there was a pivot when the riverine flooding started. And I know that the city of Northport, they I really have to commend... Mike and his team, they did such an amazing job getting their residents notified, pushing out the evacuation notices. It was it was really, really a job well done. So, Michael, how are those neighborhoods looking? How, how have the residents come back? Yeah, it's uh, it was quite the event, 500-year historic event. Uh, nobody had ever seen anything like that. You know, one of those things that, of course, we have a challenge with is, of course, as everybody knows, you know, Northport is growing crazy. Uh, it's just, you know, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So we have a lot of new residents. And like Michael was talking to earlier, you know, they figure, you know, if they've been through a severe storm, thunderstorm, they think they know what a hurricane is. And a lot of people did not understand that. So getting the messaging out, like Jody was talking about, is often 
and consistent as we could uh, was really key. And uh, fortunately, our residents really did, did pay attention, did a very, very good job of taking care of themselves, which was great. So it was very, very helpful. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking about hurricane season with Bay News 9 Chief Meteorologist Mike Clay, Manatee County Public Safety Director Jody Fisk, Northport Emergency Manager Michael Ryan, and Tampa Fire Rescue Emergency Coordinator John Antapasis. The conversation continues after the break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. With the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season underway, we're exploring what a near-normal season means for Tampa Bay. With us are Bay News 9 Chief Meteorologist Mike Clay, Manatee County Public Safety Director Jody Fisk, Northport Emergency Manager Michael Ryan, and Tampa Fire Rescue Emergency Coordinator John Antapasis. One of the challenges facing emergency managers is making sure public safety messages get through to vulnerable residents. There's the Cone of Uncertainty, a useful weather forecasting graphic that's open to misinterpretation. And there's also a barrage of misinformation to fight against with every storm. I want to ask about a recent survey by AAA that found 24% of Floridians would not evacuate if they were given a warning. And this kind of goes to what we were talking about a moment ago. But John Antapasis, what does it mean for emergency operations crews when people don't evacuate when they're advised to? I mean, obviously, we saw the life loss that happened down there in Lee County. People did not leave. Um, they thought, you know, because they've rid- ridden out a previous storm that this one would be the same, and then it wasn't. And then some people lost their lives over it. So we pushed this message throughout the year. But, you know, going back to Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey happened in Texas before, and that was the biggest sort of stick for everybody to evacuate. We had a lot of compliance during Irma, filling up our shelters. I think we had about 23,000 people in shelters throughout Hillsborough County during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, during Ian, it wasn't the same effect. You know, that TV effect, that seeing all those images from Harvey over in Texas, it really just provided that picture, say, hey, I need to get out. And we pushed the message through all our channels to try to get it as apparent as possible because it is such a life safety concern. That storm surge is unsurvivable. National Weather Service, they even changed some of their wording when they do their uh, forecast out, especially with that, you know, you will not survive from this storm surge. And again, you can replace your things in your house, um, but you can't replace losing a loved one. So we try to just keep harping on that message. It is so important in our evacuation zones when they are going to get called, you know, heed those warnings, get out. You can replace your stuff. You can't replace your family members. What about communication too? Because sometimes that can be a challenge, uh, you know, in the lead up to storm and afterwards too, as maybe cell phone towers might go down, et cetera. So do you have to supplement that with a bit of door-to-door communication too in, in, in the event of a approaching storm? Yeah, like Jody was saying, we hit it on all communication methods, social media, you know, getting out with the mayor, press conferences, with the fire chief, but also Tampa Police Department will go door to door, um, especially for mobile homes in certain areas where they know people are not evacuating and they will actually notify them directly. Jody, you've got an interesting perspective since you've worked at the state level and now at the county level. What are your thoughts about trying to break through that complacency that people might have about evacuation warnings or the dangers posed by a storm? It's interesting because I think that I think the counties, the cities, the state, I think we're very good at, at pushing the message. I think that it's it's early. You know, we're out there. We're doing our pushing out the information. We work very closely with the weather service and the hurricane service. And when you look at social media in particular, that's a great medium to get information out to a lot of people and very quickly. But it is also the worst medium because you're fighting misinformation from other people that are putting stuff out. So, you know, if I'm telling people 
please evacuate, you know, zone A and zone B, and somebody else is going, no, don't worry about it because we live in zone A and we did Ian last year and it was fine. And here's all the things that you can do. That fight with the misinformation is really, really difficult, I think, to navigate. We're very fortunate in Manatee County. We have a very dedicated public information officer specifically for public safety mm-hmm. who is just continuous pushing out the messaging retweeting posting on on facebook and and instagram to say these are the correct mediums this is where the information is you know this is where the proper information comes from so it's social media is great there's the other methods you've got the everbridge you've got reverse 911 we've got multiple notifications some of them do require though that you register. Right. And unfortunately, we saw earlier this year, one alert that came out at 445 in the morning and people went crazy and thought, oh, I'm, I'm just not going to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of parents who take themselves off registrations for alerts from their schools because they don't want to hear about all the buses that are running late, but then they're upset when their child's school goes on lockdown and they don't get that message. Mm-hmm. So messaging is a constant fight. We're just, we're very fortunate with our public information team. But I think if I could impress upon people one additional factor, when they make their decision, they're affecting a lot of people. I watched our dispatchers in the county that I was posted up and really, really struggle with the folks that chose not to evacuate, but then realized when there was eight, nine feet of water coming in and it wasn't slowing down, they called 911 and the dispatchers have to tell them, help is not coming. We cannot send anybody to you. So a lot, there's a lot of mental trauma that is imposed upon telecommunicators when that happens. There's the guilt that our first responders feel for not being able to go out and do that. And then it makes a lot of them almost want to put themselves in that harm's way. You know, they'll say it's only 60 miles an hour. We can, we can go slow and get our truck out there. So one decision based on misinformation or an assumption that you've lived through it will have a ripple effect across hundreds of people. And it's just, it's important that people realize that when we're pushing messaging, it's not just for fun. It is because we are looking at the impacts to to hundreds of thousands of people, not just to one individual person in one individual location. Michael, I wonder about your thoughts on that. Do you feel like since the city has gone through a pretty devastating hurricane season, and as you say, a lot of new people are coming into the city, but there's still plenty of folks who know what it's like, has that changed the way you might approach getting messaging through or are there some takeaways from how you you approach this storm season knowing what you know from ian interesting phenomenon people are very interested in getting presentations this year we have a lot of requests for outreach mm-hmm. uh you know we held our expo this year had a 50 percent increase from last year's attendance i get a lot of requests from groups and homeowners groups to come out and do talks had to do two employee sessions because our employees were now very concerned so it's Sitting where we were, having the the occasion to sit through Ian for over seven hours of just getting battered simply because of the path it took and it's, you know, nine miles an hour forward speed, you know, it, it got people's attentions. And I have not heard anybody come up to me yet and say, I sat through Ian and I have no problem doing it again. I haven't heard one of those yet. All of those, we're not doing that again. We're leaving. We're getting out. We're making plans. We're calling family. We're calling friends. You know, we're getting up-to-date information. We're putting our kits together. We're putting up. So it's been very, very proactive uh, within the city, which is good. It's just a matter of keeping up. Make sure they're doing the right thing. Mike Clay, the hurricane forecast cone, 
uh, of uncertainty mm. or concern, depending on how you want to describe it. It's been around for more than 20 years now. How useful is this as a tool to help people understand an approaching storm, and how should people interpret the cone? That's a very good question. And, you know, we go to these conferences and we sit around and we talk about it for two hours and nobody comes up with anything. There should be something better, but what? Mm. So I think it's important for everyone to realize that it is not a forecast cone. It is an average error cone. So the forecaster puts down his points and he says where he thinks this is going to go. And then the cone is drawn at the average error of the last five years at those points. So the big thing you need to take away from that is if there's a great deal of certainty in the forecast, the cone is the same. And if there's a great deal of uncertainty in the forecast, the cone is the same. It doesn't change. Also, as the cone shrinks as you get closer and it's stretched, people might say, well, I'm out of the cone. But the cone is not an impact cone. So, for example, uh, last year, Hurricane Nicole hit the East Coast, but there were tropical storm force winds extended 200 miles north of the center. And those areas were not even close to the cone, but they got pounded on the east coast of Florida uh, when the center came in pretty far south and the tropical storm force winds went past Jacksonville. So the cone is not an impact cone, and the cone does not tell you if there's any certainty or uncertainty in the forecast. So you have to keep that in mind. I hate the spaghetti plot. I don't use it for forecasting. Uh, we use other things now. It's kind of very 2000-ish. Hmm. But there is one thing you can take from that. If all the lines on the spaghetti plot are pointed in the same spot, there's a great deal of confidence in the forecast. If they're all spread out all over the place, then you know, hey, I got to check back in in a couple of hours because this thing, this thing could go anywhere. It's mathematics, and it's, it's just formulas being run. And if all these models are showing the same thing, running different formulas from MIT and the Weather Service and NASA, and they're all showing the same thing, then you know you have a problem if it's pointed at you. So that's the one good use of the spaghetti plot, I think, in 2023, mm -hmm. is, is it helps you judge the certainty or uncertainty of the situation. What's your advice then to, to viewers? What, what do you tell them? What's the best way to approach hurricane season and make sure you're well-informed? And a lot of new Floridians, indeed, and we already talked about that. I say have the weather for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check in with us two, three times a day. If there's something going on, make sure you check in with us three times a day. Things can change a lot in six hours. And so just stay informed and, and make sure you follow on uh, your phone or on social media or TV or watching on an app or Roku or whatever you're doing. Uh, make sure you just stay informed and make sure you have several ways to communicate. And, and you can always get that information because you can't just just push it aside and not even not worry about it, especially if there's a threat, especially if there's something out there that, that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. John, what would your advice be to brand new residents to Tampa Bay? What, what are a couple of things that they should do to make sure that they're prepared for hurricane season? The three pillars that we talk about all year uh, getting prepared is one, making a plan. Know where you're going to go during a storm, what your plan is. Are you staying with family and friends, going to a hotel? If you live in an evacuation zone, know what your evacuation zone is. But get all that sorted ahead of time. It's going to reduce that stress when the moment comes that you're ready to pre-thought all of it together. Getting your supply kit, obviously taking advantage of the tax-free holiday that's going on right now, whether that's adding a generator to your house, updating your kids, getting those non-perishable foods. Get all those supplies in place. We see it every single storm that comes through. The shelves get empty at all our supermarkets around the city. You don't want to add that extra stress. And then finally, like we were saying before, staying informed, watching our local news media. 
being informed throughout the year, signing up to those emergency alerts. We have Alert Tampa in the city of Tampa. You can uh, receive those alerts directly to your phone by signing up to that system, but as well as our uh, trusted sources on social media, city of Tampa's uh, social media sources or Alert Tampa, we're on there as well that we focus on emergency alerts. But really those three pillars, making a plan, getting your kit, and staying informed through the season, that's going to keep you well ahead of being prepared this year. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a lot of pressure off people if they know why they need to evacuate. If you live on high ground in Wesley Chapel, you don't need to drive to Georgia and pack up the U-Haul. You evacuate because of the water, not because of the wind. So if you're in a, in a zone that would uh, have surge, like we saw in Naples and Fort Myers Beach, that you could drown, we can't all leave at once. And we're lucky because we have some high spots in Pinellas County. We have, we have a spot in Pinellas County. It's 100 feet above sea level. And so we're lucky in that regard. We don't have to go very far. I mean, I've had people call me in a panic that live in eastern Hernando County. And, and, you know, where do we need to go? Well, you don't need to go anywhere. The surge is going to stop at the coast. Hmm. So that's why you need to evacuate. And it's not because uh, you're afraid of 100-mile-an-hour wind. Uh, We could get an 80-mile-an-hour wind from an afternoon thunderstorm in the summer. But the water is the big deal. And a lot of people don't understand that that is why all these evacuations are talked about. And, you know, around Tampa Bay and uh, especially up into Tampa and on Pinellas Coast, that's serious because of the bay. Mm. Jody, just to wrap up here, any thoughts to leave people with as we head into this hurricane season? Really just to echo what everyone has said, make a kit, be prepared. There's a lot of free resources where you can get the information and talk to your neighbors. You know, there's no one that's going to be able to tell you more about how you're going to be impacted for a storm than the person who's lived there and has gone through storms and know where to get your information, kind of make the effort to get a basic understanding. But those alerts and getting your information from a trusted source is really your best defense. Mm -hmm. We are going to tell you all day long, be prepared to be self-sufficient for up to three, three to five days. But we are going to be working real hard on the back end after Hurricane Ian The state of Florida got the first point of distribution up and operational within 20 hours of the winds dying down. We are going to be pushing as hard as we can to get you resources, but preparation is your best defense. I think just being cautious where you get your information. uh, We've got really good meteorologists and really good resources in Tampa Bay, but, you know, you can also get burned out. And you see some of this stuff on social media and just be very cautious about and no computer at five, six days can tell you where a hurricane's going to hit. Might be one there, but you can't say, oh, no, here it comes. And and you just get emotionally burnt out. So you have to be cautious. I will always direct people to local media because I know where they're getting their information from. I don't have to worry about Sammy's weather page on Facebook. And don't worry, I you know got certified in meteorology online. No. I agree wholeheartedly. The trusted sources is go there. Please go there. Mm-hmm. If I could, just one final thing. I know Mike hit on this earlier about the cone. Uh, a lot of our folks always look at that little skinny black line in the middle of the cone. The hurricane does not pay attention to the skinny little black line. And Ian was a perfect example. Ian, just about 100, 150 miles out, made a little 20-mile adjustment to the south. The eye of the storm just made a 20-mile adjustment to the south. That changed landfall from Tampa down to Fort Myers. I mean, just a little wiggle can change the landfall tremendously and have a totally different impact of what was inspected 24, 36 hours earlier. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us. Michael Ryan is the City of Northport Emergency Manager. Michael, thank you. Thank you. We've also been speaking with Jody Fisk, Manatee County Public Safety Director. Jody, thank you so much. 
course. Thank you. And John Antapasis, Tampa Fire Rescue Emergency Coordinator. John, thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Mike Clay, Bay News 9 Chief Meteorologist. Thank you so much as well. Always a pleasure. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. Production assistance for this week's show from Blake Bass. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>